Um, this morning we're continuing in the book of Acts. Um, I hope you've been enjoying it so far and you felt like God's stirred something in you and challenged you in different ways. Um, but this morning we continue and we're going to be looking at uh, the subject of religion versus Christianity. So it's a nice juicy subject for you, isn't it? Um, if you want to get your Bibles ready, we're in chapter 4. Um, in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to be going from verse 1. Uh, it will come up on the screen if you don't have your Bible. It's good to have your Bible there. Read things in context. Um, but if you remember last week, Steve was talking to us about Peter and John. They go to the temple, as they so often would have done, and they meet this lame beggar. And it turns out that lots of people seem to know this beggar. He's been there for a long time. He was 40, um, actually, 40 years of age. And, and, they, and they've he's asked them for coins, for money, and he said, well, I, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. And they say, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And guess what? He's healed. It's incredible. And off the back of that, they start to preach in the, in the temple about Jesus and about this resurrection life that's found in him and how they were able to heal this guy. And that's a big no-no. You're not allowed to do that. And they're, they're they find this out, they know this, um, but they're going to have this running and we're going to see religion and Christianity meet. Not for, the, not for the last time, but for the first time since Jesus has ascended and sent his Holy Spirit, we have this big clash between these two worlds. Okay, so let me pray real quick and we'll jump into Acts 4, 1 to 22. Uh, Father, we just thank you for this morning. Thank you that you've been speaking to us already. Lord, would we have hearts to receive all that you have for us this morning? Would we continuously open our hearts to you and allow you to speak? Uh, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, we, uh, we allow it to speak into us through the power of your spirit this morning. And Lord, I thank you that you love us. You are just here in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> Acts 4, 1 to 22. It says, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed, greatly disturbed, because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John because it was evening. They put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000 in the church. Isn't that amazing? The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas and the high priest were there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, <clears throat> if we were able, if we, sorry, if we were being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which, he, which has become the cornerstone. We've just been singing about that. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, 
there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we, we must warn them that to speak no longer to anyone in, in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, as you would imagine, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. But they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened for the man who was miraculously healed. Of, he was over 40 years old. So, okay, so um, today we are talking about the inevitable. We are talking about something that had to happen, that was going to happen, and now has happened. Jesus has ascended, and he has sent his Holy Spirit, and his church is on the move. And for the first time, we get this encounter of religion versus Christianity. It's, it's, it's Jesus followers meeting the religious elite. Um, I, I want to share a little story with you. Um, have you. Have you ever had a moment where you know you've just made a mistake? I've probably had one or two in my life. Uh, no more than that. Uh, Jenny probably has a few more. But, but where you know you've made a mistake. Um, when I was in my late teens about 19 years old, uh, uh, I was doing a year out for Youth for Christ. And my job was as a, as to be a youth worker for three churches. Um, I was kind of split between three churches. And one of them was in Hemlington in Middlesbrough. Uh, if th- those of you don't know Middlesbrough very well, um, I mean, people in the country say that Middlesbrough's a bit rough, don't they? Well, people in Middlesbrough would say Hemlington's a bit rough. And... Um, and that's where, where my wife's from, actually, uh, Middlesbrough. Uh, but, um, but, but in, in Middlesbrough, Hem, Hemlington has a, has, a, has a reputation for being a bit rough. Actually, Hemlington, a few weeks ago, was on uh, BBC Panorama as a hotspot for antisocial behaviour in the country. And let me tell you, from my time there, that's definitely, definitely uh, was my experience um, of, of what Hemlington was like. The, the vicar there it was a Church of England church. Um, he was a lovely guy. Uh, and he said, you've got one job. Why he had love you to bring some young people into church, especially on a Sunday morning. would love to have more young people in. The church was only small, about 15 people. And, uh, and this one morning was my morning to be at that church in Hemlington. And I went along early um, but you couldn't go into the building early because the Catholic Church hired the Church of England building uh, beforehand to do mass, and then we'd have to wait and go in when they when they'd finished as Church of England church. So I was there, and as as I was there, the the the, the church building's right on like the main strip in Hemlington, and um, and there's a group of lads, about six or seven lads playing football, kicking it up against the wall at the side of the church building. And I thought, oh, I'll go and say hi to them. So I go along, chat with them, uh, play a bit of of football with them, waiting for church to start. And then church is about to start. So I said to the guys, do you want to come in to church? I'm thinking, you know, they want young people in the church. I'll invite them in. They were a bit rough, but, you know, nice enough lads, mid, you know, early teens. And um, I said, do you want to come into church? And they were kind of giving me that look, you know, the look where they're like, why would we want to come to church? And I said, well, 
actually, we have um, chocolate biscuits and tea afterwards if you, want, if you want to come in. So they started to kind of give each other like the look, oh, I could do with a cup of tea and a biscuit. And then obviously that mixed with seeing my skills with the football, they were obviously convinced. And they said, yes, they came into church. And it was brilliant. Um, until about the first second that we walked into the building, I realized I'd made a huge mistake. And we walked in and the, the vicar... He uh, was an incredible guy and really enthusiastic and really happy that these young lads, this group of lads, uh, had come into church. Uh, but he was a one-man show. He played the organ. He, he led the meeting, the, the, you know, the service and preached. He did everything all by himself. And, um, and the moment I walked in, I knew it was bad news. There was a woman who sat on the row in front of us. And you know you can tell by the back of somebody's head sometimes that they're not happy with you. I could tell she wasn't happy. And I heard like a comment that was made about what these lads were wearing to church and how disgraceful it was what they were wearing, that they would come into church looking like that. And uh, as the meeting went on, it got worse and worse. And, um, and while we were stood there singing uh, these hymns, uh, these lads just were, you know, they were disconnected from it all. They did didn't care really, didn't know what the words meant and they were kind of chattering amongst themselves. Now they weren't being particularly disrespectful uh, but they were just, they were disconnected and, and I could see this woman in front of me and her blood was just beginning to boil and uh, anyway, at one, and it got to a point where like a volcano in front of me, she erupted and she turned around with a hymn book in her hand and like shoved it into the stomach of the boy who was closest to her and went sing and it was this yeah you're laughing now I wasn't laughing <laughs> um, and uh, and then she proceeded to walk around to our row and sat in between the guys who had brought in and made them sing as she scrolled her finger down the hymn book sing along to what where her finger was and at one point I saw the collection little pocket I don't know what it's called, a pouch thing come down the aisle and I saw one of the lad's hands go in and a five pound note come out. And I thought, oh no. But the straw, the straw that broke the camel's back, um, the end of the meeting, it, we just managed to get through it. And the woman, she got up, she was furious. And she went straight up to the vicar, started telling him what was what. And as she's in mid-floor, telling him what, what, everything that was wrong with this morning and how terrible it was that these boys were allowed to come in. Uh, out the corner of her eye, on, this, on the right-hand side of where we were sat, there's a statue of the Virgin Mary because the Catholics had just been in. And there was a statue of the Virgin Mary and there was loads of candles. You know, that they light candles in front of the Virgin Mary. And one of the lads walked over and as she's in mid-floor, telling the vicar everything that's wrong with what's just happened this morning, one lad with one giant exhale just blows out all of the candles in front of the Virgin Mary statue. That was it. She snapped and she walked out and the lads went off to go and get their chocolate biscuit and their cup of tea. And I went over to say sorry to the vicar because <laughs> I felt so bad about the morning. Um, and, and then the lads come back and tell me that they're being made to pay for their tea and their biscuit because they're not regulars. And I didn't realize that that woman was on tea and coffee that morning. <laughs> it was a terrible, terrible morning. You know, when we have an encounter with religion, we know it. There's no disguise in it. 
I don't know if those lads ever went to church ever again. In fact, I'd be surprised if they did. And for that morning, they had a real encounter with what religion looked like. And actually, the destruction that religion brings. Those lads were potentially interested in what we had to say about Jesus, and yet we never got that far. And I've never forgotten that experience, that blunt encounter I've had with religion, and not because I'm bitter about it or I'm angry with a woman, just because it was actually a really good warning to me personally to be on guard against religion in my own life. Religion has this deadening, dulling effect. Religion puts structure and rules in the place of a savior. Religion tells people that they must fit into a system, that they must serve that system rather than to serve Christ. Religion says that you have to work hard to, in order to appease God. You have to look right. You have to behave right in order to gain God's favor. You need to impress God. And only when you do all the right things in all the right order, and only if you do those things, will he allow you to enter heaven. Jesus had a real problem with religion. A real problem with religion and the established religious authorities that were in place in the temple and all across Israel. They would make rules and laws to suit themselves and, and to suit their own agenda. And they would use their positions and their wealth and their influence to maintain their own power and to increase their own riches rather than to help and to serve the powerless. Jesus called the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious elite in that time, he called them hypocrites, a brood of vipers, evil. He called them blind guides, robbers, and he said that their father was the devil. What do you think Jesus thought of them? <laughs> Jesus had some really strong comments about the religious elite and the oppression that they were putting on the people who they were called to serve and to love on behalf of God. In Matthew 23, 3 to 7, he's, when he's talking about the religious elite, he says that, so you must be careful to do everything that they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, they put, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything that they do is for people to see. They make their uh, phylacities wide and their tassels and their garments long. They love, to, they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with, and res, with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. And Jesus just had a real problem with the whole situation. Everything that they did was about maintaining their own self-righteousness, about making sure that everybody else knew that they weren't as good as them. They were the ones who were good enough. And you're not good enough like I am. You're not clever enough and as educated as I am. You don't know the law like I do. I hold the keys. I'm the one who decides and I'm the one who who says who, who is good enough and who isn't. I'm the one who says who is in and who is not. And Jesus constantly calls them out on it. They tie people up, they wear them down with heavy loads and do nothing to help them or to love them in the situation that they're in. And that's exactly, exactly who the early church we've just read about have an encounter with in this moment. It is literally like tidal wave meets tidal wave. They have their first real encounter since Jesus sent the Holy Spirit and his disciples have their first real encounter 
with, with this religious elite. So in this moment, Peter and John, like we said, they've just healed this guy and he is able to walk. It's incredible, right? Uh, but not for the Pharisees. <laughs> They're not happy with this. The Pharisees, um, uh, sorry, not with, the, not with the Sadducees in the temple. And the Pharisees, who Jesus so often has these running these encounters encounters with, they, they're not happy about this miracle. They're not happy about what's going on in the temple. And it tells us the priests, the captain of the temple guard, that's like kind of like the chief of police, and the Sadducees, they all come to Peter and John whilst they're preaching. So while they're mid-floor, while they're speaking to the crowd in the temple, they literally get interrupted right in the midst of it. And they're approached because what's going on is not permitted. It's not allowed to happen. But it's late, and it's too late by the law of Israel to, have a, to hold a Jewish trial. They're not allowed to do it at night. That's not, not allowed to happen. Now, obviously, when it came to Jesus, they ignored that law, but we won't get into that. But in this moment, they decide to obey the law, and they put Peter and John in, in the cells overnight, and they likely, it doesn't tell us, but they likely put the guy who was healed in the cells overnight as well, because he's there the next day. Uh, they kind of bring him out to be part of the trial. So you can imagine that first night he gets his legs back, he'd be practicing his cartwheels in, in the prison cells. Um, but, but there they are, they're in the cells overnight. Um, and the temple rulers, they knew that they had a huge issue. You can almost imagine them talking about it whilst they're eating at, eating at night, you know, talking about what they're going to do. They've got a huge issue. We know that there's already 5,000 men who have come to believe Jesus as their Lord and Savior through the preaching of these apostles. That doesn't talk about the women and the children as well. The church is ginormous at this point. And they knew they had an issue. Um, and, but, so they can't just kill Peter and John. That could cause an uprising. And the Sadducees are just interested in keeping the peace in the temple, keeping the Romans happy, and they keep their place of authority. So that what they do is they work through their tactics. They bring them both, and probably all three of them, to, in front of the Sanhedrin the next morning. Now, what is the Sanhedrin? So I'll show you a picture. The Sanhedrin uh, is a little bit of a picture there of what it would have looked like. You've got the high priest who sits in the middle there, and there would be 70 men, 35 members either side. You've got some clerks, and there's some kind of students seating for those who are as, uh, disciples. You've got the accused in the middle. That's where Peter and John would have stood. And it's where Jesus would have stood not long before that, before the Sanhedrin. And the word Sanhedrin, it comes from the word council. It's, it, it's just a council. It was the Jewish council of uphold, upholding the law. And they were the judges of Israel. They would, they would enforce the law as well. And each town throughout Israel would have a Sanhedrin. But this was the great grand Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Um, like I said, 70 men, they were made up of, of, um, of priests, they were made up of Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, we're going to get into those words in just a second, and they would sit in that semicircle like you saw, and they would debate between themselves and bring judgment on what was happening. And about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, we hear those names a lot, don't we? And we often wonder, well, what's the difference? Well, just a kind of brief overview, the Pharisees, um, were the, they were generally the, the people of the people. The Pharisees were kind of working class. 
Uh, they, people would generally be behind them throughout Israel. And the Pharisees, the, one of the key differences is the Pharisees recognized, if you turn to your Old Testament in your Bible, the Pharisees would recognize the majority of that Old Testament. All the writings, the, the poetry, the, the, the book of the law, they would, they would recognize all of it as being from God and, and right to use, whereas the Sadducees wouldn't. The Pharisees would also, they would believe in the spiritual realm. They would believe uh, in miracles. They would be completely open to healing and things like that. Um, whereas the Sadducees, the Sadducees, they were the posh lot. They, that's the best way to remember them. They were the upper class. They were the ones in political power. And they were the ones of status. It's almost like the Eton lot in our country. Do you know the ones who always end up prime minister? They always go to Eton College for some reason. It's kind of like the Sadducees. <laughs> um, they were the ones that were the political power. They were the ones who ruled the temple, the holy temple in Jerusalem. That was their job to rule that. And they only recognized the first five books. They only recognized... The, the books of Moses, they didn't recognize anything else. They didn't believe in the spiritual realm or spiritual reality. They didn't believe in miracles. And so you can see why they would have a problem with two people in the temple, which they're in charge of, by the way, teaching about the resurrection. You'd see why they'd take issue with that. <laughs> um, and the high priests, the high priest would only ever come from the Sadducees. Um, and we're not going to get into the high priest and all that right now, but but that's who they were. And generally, this is kind of what they would have looked like. So the Pharisees in the black, uh, they were, like I said, the, the rulers of the temple, uh, the, the sorry, synagogues throughout Israel. And the Sadducees, they just a little bit more, well, a little bit more like kids do for nativities at school. Um, but obviously, that's not a real picture, you understand, from 2,000 years ago. But this is kind of what they would address like. Um, but there was a clear difference between the two. And they had opted opposing opinions and the apostle Paul will use this to his advantage when he's in front of the Sanhedrin in the future but but they um they didn't really care uh for each other um very much and and most of Jesus's runnings would have been with the Pharisees the guys in the black they were bothered about what was being taught and where it was being taught and when it was being taught and whose authority it was being taught uh, whereas, the, whereas the Sadducees, the posh lot, they weren't really that bothered about Jesus until he became a political threat, until he threatened their political standing in Jerusalem, which is obviously when they team up, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they decide they're going to kill Jesus, which they do. Okay, so that's who they are. That's where they are. They're in, they're in the Sanhedrin. The whole of the Sanhedrin is there. And, and once again... The Sanhedrin is dealing with people who were threatening their political power in Jerusalem. They're teaching things that are not permitted, and they're a threat to them. It's too dangerous for them to have this going on within the temple. But these followers are claiming that this man that they've healed was healed through the power of Jesus. This man that they killed, by the way. So the power of Jesus that they killed is the one who, in whose name they're healing this man. And this man's right there to verify what's happened. He's probably like kicking his legs, going, look, they work. Like, I've been healed. But notice, they're not bothered about the healing. They're not interested at all in the facts. What they're bothered about is asserting who's in charge and whose authority they have to speak in the temple. Whose authority do they have to come and heal people? Because it's not their authority, and they're the ones who are in charge around the temple. 
But what they meet is two men who, who they're trying to intimidate. They bring him in front of the grand Sanhedrin. And, and just think back to Jesus stood in front of them. Do you think Jesus' knees were wobbling in front of the Sanhedrin? No. He was God and he was stood in front of them. And yet here we see two of his disciples, the, the man they think they've dealt with. And yet two of his disciples are here. And do you think they're scared or intimidated? They had absolutely no fear. And in verse 8, it tells us what's going on. Peter and John were filled with the Holy Spirit. And this pattern that we see all the, all the way through the book of Acts, where the, where the religious elite, those who think that they can oppress and rain down their power on the people, they meet and encounter disciples of Jesus who are empowered with the Holy Spirit, and guess what? They're not scared of you anymore. <laughs> it's incredible. And the, and, the, and the disciples, Peter and John, they stand there in front of the whole Sanhedrin and they speak so powerfully, so boldly and so confidently to the Sanhedrin. And it says that they're, they're left baffled. These, these two uneducated Galilean men who have an inkling of the knowledge that they have about the, the Torah or about Scripture. And yet here they are, these two Galileans who are teaching them about Scripture. And you can almost imagine like you'd be able to hear a pin drop in that room or they would have been shuffling like nervously in their seats and they don't know what to do. How do we respond to this? And they had absolutely no compromise, no surrender. Were their knees knocking? No, they weren't. They were completely confident in what they were saying. And I, I want to share with you a quick story. This is absolutely true. It's amazing. Um, it's about a man called Peter Cartwright. And Peter Cartwright uh, was a, a, a Methodist minister and it says this, it says, Peter Cartwright was a great circuit-riding Methodist preacher in Illinois, uh, an uncompromising man. He'd traveled north from Tennessee because of his opposition to slavery in the southern states. So he traveled north. One Sunday morning when he was scheduled to preach, his deacons told him that President Andrew Jackson, the President Andrew Jackson, um, who hadn't abolished slavery, by the way, was visiting and was in the congregation. Knowing the, knowing the preacher <laughs> and that he was used to saying whatever he felt God wanted him to say, regardless of how people might react, they, they went to him because they didn't want him to say anything that would offend the president. He stood up to preach and said, I understand that President Andrew Jackson is here. <laughs> And then he said, uh, sorry, I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. <laughs> the audience was shocked. They wondered how President Jackson would respond to this. But after the service, he told Cartwright, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the whole world into order. And this is exactly how we see the early church the disciples, filled with the power of the Spirit, respond to the opposition of religion with beautiful integrity. The Sanhedrin, what can they do with these disciples? Nothing. They can't do anything. They can't intimidate them. They can't threaten them. They try, but it doesn't work. And they tell them, don't you be telling anybody else about this Jesus. 
How do you think that's going to go down? Not very well. You see, the disciples knew exactly who they were dealing with. They were dealing with the Sanhedrin, the religious elite that brought nothing but death and oppression to the people of Israel, where Jesus, he brought life. Try and keep them quiet about that. They can't. I want to finish by saying a few things. You see, the ruling class will continue. We'll see through the book of Acts. They will continue to do everything in their power. They were so concerned with maintaining the power that they had and the religious and political power that they had that they would do anything, and I mean anything, to keep hold of it and not let one bit of it go. They would even kill people in order to keep their power. Jesus gave us an incredible image and illustration of what, the, what religion was. He walks over to a fig tree. You remember this story? It looks great. It looks like it's going to bear fruit. It looks, it looks beautiful tree. And when he gets up close to it, there's not one piece of fruit on that tree. And Jesus curses the tree. And it's a sign of what religion is. It might look good. It might look okay. But it actually has no fruit, no life to it. Going back to my story at the beginning about those boys, those boys, from the moment they walked into church, they knew that they weren't dressed well enough. They didn't know the correct times to sit down or stand up. They didn't know the songs. They didn't know what half the words that were said, what they even meant. They didn't know anything. But one thing they did know was that they weren't good enough and they weren't welcome. Sadly, that morning, they didn't find any belonging They didn't make the cut. Religion, you see, is all about you. You being good enough. You dressing well enough. You saying the right things at the right time. Your your attitude, the way you apply yourself, your discipline, where Christianity is all about Jesus. It's about his righteousness attributed to you. It's about your sins being removed by him. It's about him adopting you into his family. In him, we find true belonging, true meaning, true family, and true identity. It's all in him. And some of you sat here this morning, you might have grown up in in churches or in countries where religion is completely normal, completely accepted, and completely promoted. Jesus is clear that he doesn't want us to follow that. He doesn't want us as his followers to put religion on other people, but also, and very importantly, to put religion on yourself. And the thing is, is we might not think that we're like that lady in my story. We might not think that we put religion on people. We might not think that, you know, we're unaccepting of people, that we judge them. But actually, the reality is that we can do that to ourselves. We can allow religion to be put on ourselves by ourselves. We allow ourselves to believe things like, if only I worked harder. If only I was better at praying. Anybody wish they were better at praying? If only I was a bit more charismatic like that guy or that woman. If 
only I read my Bible more, if only I defeated that sin in my life that keeps coming back to get me, if only I actually dealt with it. We can be ashamed of ourselves, who we truly are. We can think, I need to work harder to appease God, to gain his favor. I need to be better. I need to be a better version of myself. I need to be more like that guy or like that super mum. Or I need to, uh, and, and, and what, what happens is we allow this curse of comparison to other people to come and rule our lives. To think, if only I was better, if only I was a better husband, if only I was a, a better person in general. And these are lies that the enemy loves for you to believe. Because if only, and, and to keep you weighed down under, if, because if only I was a better person, if I was stronger, if I had more willpower, if I'd actually dealt with that sin that seems to keep coming back and haunting me, then actually I think God will love me more. That's how we can think. Then God would use me more. He would show more favor to me. My life would be better. I just need to work a bit harder. I just need to get better at this. Let me be really honest, really truthful about everything. Religion brings to your life lies and death. Jesus brings truth and life. God cannot love you any more than he does right in this moment, right now. You cannot be cleaner or more accepted by him any more than you are right now, right in this second. The Bible tells us that when we accept Jesus, the moment that we accept him into our lives, you are clean, accepted, adopted, and you are welcomed into his family. And as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes your sin from you. We are clean, washed white as snow. Your Father God sees you and he cannot love you anymore. Let me just say it one more time. God loves you as much now as he ever can love you. You cannot impress him. <laughs> you cannot work harder to gain more love or more favor. You are 100% accepted right now as you are. And the lie inside of you is that you can, need to be better. You need to work harder. It's all lies and it's what the enemy wants you to believe. This is the good news that the disciples refused to stop sharing. The religion that you try and put on the people of Israel, the religion that you try and put on the whole world to be better, to work harder in order to maintain that you feel good about your own self-righteousness, it is dead and buried because Jesus is alive. He brings life. He brings salvation. I'm going to ask Phil and Steve just to come back up and we're going to respond in just a second. Um, it's just as they start playing. Um, I'm just going to ask all of you to stand. I'm going to pray and then Graham's just going to come and lead us through a response. We've got 10 minutes or so to do, do that. Just thinking about kids' work and youth. They're going to play, but just don't worry about that. We're just, just going to allow a, just a place of worship to be here of who God is. But let me be really clear. Religion brings lies and death. Jesus brings truth and life.
Lord Jesus, we welcome you in this place right here and right now. I thank you for the truth, Lord, that you bring salvation, life, truth. Lord, in you we find everything we'll ever need, ever want. Lord, thank you that your disciples refuse to stop sharing the news and because of their obedience, today I'm walking in relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, that religion is dead. And we thank you that you are alive. Lord Jesus, I want to pray into that religious spirit that can enter us all. And we might put that on others, but Lord, it's so easy to put it on ourselves and it can remain hidden for years. Father, right now, as Graham just brings us a response, I pray that we would be open. Lord, help our hearts to be open to what you're about to do and speak into us.